I found out that Peggy, like myself, will go to any lengths in this program, and she has a black belt now and on just like I do. <laughs> she has been in the program since 1968. I'm not going to tell you how many kids she has. I'm going to let her do that. She has been an Alateen sponsor for 10 years. Now that takes courage and a lot of patience and a lot of love, and this woman has it. Uh, she has spent two term, two five-year terms with each group, and uh, she tells me that for five years she spent being an Alateen sponsor in an all-girls school. And um, because I have two daughters, I can imagine what she has gone through for those five years. You know, girls are, are beautiful people. I'd never give mine up, but just sometimes, just temporarily. Peggy um, has been uh, appointed the literature chairman at our World Service Office and has uh, taken on that responsibility since 1960, since April of this year, sorry. And she and her husband Jim, who is also in Al-Anon, serve as volunteers um, at a new facility helping uh, patients from um, ha helping with families of patients with uh, ages 12 and up. And uh, so here they get to meet a lot of newcomers. And um, again, uh, they go to any length for this program. She has a certain amount of serenity that uh, uh, I admire in her and um, long for and am willing to um, work for. And uh, let me just turn it over to Peggy. Give her a nice warm welcome. Thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here. I really am. I, in fact, I, I was doing really great, and I didn't have any nervous feelings or butterflies or any problems until I wanted to be perfect. <laughs> and then some butterflies and things, sweaty palms and things happened, but I think I'm going to be all right. I won't be perfect. Isn't that a relief for all of us? Uh, I'm so thrilled to be in Tennessee, and I do thank the committee for inviting me. Um, several years ago, my daughter Jean said to me, um, Mom, I think I'm going to quit my job and do some service projects for church. She had a wonderful job in the city of Philadelphia. Jim and I live right outside of Philly, and... We, um, I, I was kind of stunned, and I said, well, what do, you, what do you mean? And she said, well, I called this Volunteers in Mission, and I sent a letter to them, and, and uh, they sent me a letter back, and I'm assigned to a camp in Ozone, Tennessee. Now, I have asked practically everybody that I've met since yesterday that's from Tennessee, and, and I don't think anybody knew where that was. Does anybody know where Ozone, Tennessee is? Oh, here's a couple of people. Great. Good, 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 good. So we, we prayed her over to Ozone, Tennessee, and she was assigned to a camp. Here was this little city girl, and she, had, she received word that she would be building Hogan's. We didn't know. We had to look it up in the dictionary. What is a Hogan? Maybe you know what that is. We didn't. 
and uh, she would be clearing out mice and bugs and all kinds of things and she was not at all that tight but she was going to take you know be lifted on all these prayers and go on to Tennessee and do some work and two weeks after she got there we were in touch and she would call and she everything was just as mousy and dirty and and um, difficult and she was sore and sunburned and tired and and people and kids haven't even hadn't even arrived at the camp yet and two weeks after she arrived she called and she said mom I met my husband so I was talking to someone after that I said my daughter called and she said mom I met my husband and I didn't know whether to get on a plane and the man said to me or get on your knees <laughs> and that was really the more sensible thing to do and I'm one of those that takes the cheapest way out you know so I got on my knees and I prayed and a week later she called and said mom I accepted a diamond that was progress wasn't it <laughs> so we sent uh, a couple of spies down you've heard those stories before where people send spies out to see what the land looks like and uh, so we sent a couple of different people down her her sisters and and uh, they one came back and said mom forget it don't say don't bother they are madly in love he's adorable his family's real nice and there's nothing you can say or do that will change anything and boy I had heard that somewhere before <laughs> and I said all right so a few weeks later when camp closed why this darling six foot four big person came in my back door and he said Peg I just love you and I just love Jeannie and thank you so much and he danced me all around the kitchen and, and uh, that was five years ago and uh, he's my darling and precious son-in-law Dan and uh, my darling and precious grandson was born in Tennessee at the Cumberland Medical Center in Crossville and uh, he um, gosh Noah was three and uh, now they have a little boy named Jonah so we call them the water boys <laughs> and um, so we have fond memories I have fond memories of landing here the day that Noah came home from the hospital and going to their little home in ozone and being with him for a week there and so it was wonderful to come back and it's wonderful to be with you our experience has always been that they are that the people in Tennessee are warm and loving and gracious and that's been my experience I when we arrived and started carting our things into our room here and we saw that basket of fruit why that was really so refreshing and so nice to find at the end of a long journey and I, I appreciate Doreen's um, introduction, you know. I told her everything to say, of course. <laughs> and, um, and, and it does take something special to be an Alateen sponsor. It takes a grit. And um, the, the reason that I, I went to my first group was that I, I had these, this house full of teenagers that I couldn't stand. And, um, and my sponsor said, well, you know, uh, why don't you uh, get to be a, an Alateen sponsor and then that way you'll you'll get some insight and you'll you know God will help you to grow in that area so I said okay well I'll go to one meeting and five years later uh, you know I finally did did stop then I had a little rest and then somebody called and needed a sponsor at they were starting a new group at a, at a uh, 
Catholic girls high school right near me and I said okay I will I'll go but you try to get somebody by the first of the year uh, I, I can't really you know take it over I'll just go and get things going and all and uh, so that as I say I think it's about five years and I just because of the appointment to the literature committee um, I felt that it was just too much for me and uh, have turned it over to someone else but I I did have some fabulous experiences there, some heartbreaking ones. I was telling Doreen, I think I mistold you something, but um, the first two years that I was there, five of the dads died. And um, so we had a lot to cope with there, with the girls and with their recovery. And, um, and to send them off to college and to, to get them to feel that they're worth it, that they, no matter what's happening at home, that they were worth it. To make some plans and to have a life, and um, it was my my honor and my privilege to work with those girls. My prayer tonight is that we will have together a spiritual experience. Um, we will both grow. I feel each of us grows as I share and as you listen and and uh, and think about things and apply things. And you know, when I'm listening, I. Somebody will say something and it shoots off a whole bunch of things that, that, uh, that, that settle me and get me to feel better. And uh, I think that was the beginning of spirituality for me, was sharing and listening, listening to other people share. That was the beginning of my growth in, in that dimension. Because, uh, you know, these, this moment will never come back again. This is, this is, this is it. We'll, we'll never be this way again. And, um, and we must really take what, what the higher power is giving us for this moment and really enjoy it and grow from it. I love to be with God's choicest people and that's what I think that we are. Some of us, some of you are my fellow sufferers. You're my fellow strugglers and you're my fellow survivors. And I'm glad to share this moment with you. You know, we do need to come away from things at home or wherever. We need to, to get away from, from the things that we're focusing on that, that aren't good for us, that, that don't help us to grow. We need to take time to contemplate our own navel. We're so busy looking at somebody else's life. Did you know that when an Al-Anon person is drowning, someone else's life passes in front of their eyes? <laughs> Today I read in an old book that I study, do not let in any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only what is helpful for building others up according to their need, that it may benefit those who listen. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, all brawling and slander, along with every other form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. My spiritual dimension began when I came to the end of Peggy and the beginning of God. This week I prayed for each of you as you decided to be here 
And it is a decision to come out and spend a Saturday evening or spend yesterday or whatever. It's a decision to come away from all that we have and, and all of our duties and new shows on Saturday night on TV and and the comfort of just kicking off the shoes and just throwing ourselves in a comfortable chair. And it, I know that it's an effort to be here for some of you. Some of you flew here, I'm sure. You were just so thrilled to get out and to be here and to do things. And I was so grateful that, that we read the opening tonight. Uh, that opening helped me so many times when I would back out of that driveway and I didn't remember where I was going. And then I finally would get to the place where the meeting was being held, church or whatever. And as I would be going up the stairs, I would hear them saying, uh, you know, we can be contented whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. Or I would hear different parts of the opening. And that would settle me down and help me. And I loved it on the nights that I was there in time. And they would say, well, good evening. This is the Drexel Hill meeting of Al-Anon. Because a lot of times I didn't even know where I was. I was in such a mess. And so that, that when we read the opening, that just settles me right down and makes me feel a lot better. So with your being here, I can see that the program obviously means as much to you as it means to me. Our family has experienced healing beyond our wildest dreams, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm the oldest of a large Irish Catholic family, and uh, we talked about being German and being in that culture where we drink. Well, the Irish are the same way. We drink if you die. We drink if you're born. We drink if you lost your job. We drink if you got a new one. And I was raised that way, and I didn't know any different. I didn't have any problem with it because I didn't know any different. And I'm so, I was so Catholic. I'll tell you how Catholic I was. I had 10 babies before I was 31. Now that's Catholic. And that's people-pleasing, too, isn't it? (laughs) In our home, uh, children were seen and not heard. Dad ruled us with an iron hand, and it was encased in a velvet glove. We never knew when it would strike. Sometimes it would be all right to stay at a friend's house after school. And sometimes you got smashed across the room if you came home 20 minutes late after school. So we never knew what was going to happen. And we never knew what the the bottom of it was. We never knew what the problem was. Being the oldest, the question always the problem was always answered with, well, where was Peggy? She's the oldest. And that's the way I grew up. Peggy was the oldest. Peggy knew everything, and Peggy had all the answers. And boy, I just, I just loved every bit of it and fed right into that. I enjoyed that immensely. In the spring of 1968, I had a call from my brother, who was at that time a senior in high school. And he said, Peg, I was at the counselor's office today filling out my papers to go, to, to, to go away to college. And um, 
I realized when I came out of the out of the room and got home that there's no way that I can go away to college next year and leave mom and Teresa with dad. We have to do something about daddy's drinking. At this time, I lived 80 miles away from my folks. I had my own home, my own little army camp, and I had all the things, all the duties that a general has, and I carried out my duties very well. And um, yet I realize now that I was just as involved with my folks and their drinking and the ups and downs as if they were living in my home. But I didn't realize it at the time. So I said, okay, Bill, we'll get together and we'll have everybody at the house tomorrow. And he was going to come, uh, come to my house after track practice. That meant hurrying after practice out to the highway and thumbing a ride all the way up, 80 miles away. And that night, he arrived right after dinner, and so did my, the rest of my brothers, all with a six-pack in hand. And we sat around my dining room table to try to figure out how to get Daddy to stop drinking. And every time the six-packs ran out, somebody ran out the back door to the friendly tavern and got another six-pack and came back in and sat with it, and we, they all nursed their six-packs while we decided what to do. So, after a couple of hours of this, who struck Joe? He beat her. He threw her around. The police came. Uh, Teresa had to lock herself in her room and all of that. Then we decided we'll make a call. One of my brothers had a, um, uh, a number of um, AA. It, somebody that he worked with on the job had gone to this thing called AA, and they had gotten sobriety, and they, had, uh, they were leading a pretty good life now. Their wife wasn't mad at them. They weren't out drinking at the bar and the whole bit. So we called that number, and we passed the telephone all around the dining room table, and the person said, well, um, well, uh, yes, well, then, then we had to call the police, and my father cursed at my mother, and my father threw my mother against the wall, and my sister did, and all the thing went all around the table. And uh, at the end of it, the man finally got somebody who would listen to him, and that man told, told that us that we had to go to Al-Anon, that uh, AA wasn't what we wanted unless Dad wanted to stop drinking, and we were sure that he didn't. He was enjoying it too much. We were not enjoying it, but he was. So we, we uh, hung up the phone, and a short time later, an Al-Anon person called. The phone rang, and we got on the phone, and we went around the table all again. He pushed her against the wall, and she cursed, and the police came, and the whole thing. And uh, they told me that there was a, finally I was the last person on the phone, and they said there's a meeting tomorrow night. And I hung up, and I told the family all of that. And they said, well, that's very interesting. Who's going to go to the Al-Anon meeting? And I said, well, I'm not going to go because I know those people are really nuts. If they can't make somebody, their own person, stop drinking, why should I go and listen to all their long dreary stories about how horrible it is to live with an alcoholic. I can't be bothered. I had all, this, uh, all these things at home to take care of. So, of course, at the end of the 
of the night, there were two things that were involved with Peggy going to the Al-Anon meeting. I was the oldest, and I was the only non-drinking member of the Martin family. So I was elected to go. And the next night I went to the meeting, and I walked in, and it was very interesting to see that there were about 30 people standing around a coffee pot. I had never seen people drinking coffee or tea or things like that after dinner before. I had only seen people with a bottle or a drink or whatever. I hadn't really seen this kind of thing. And I knew that they had a secret, and if they would only tell me, everything would be all right in our family. I asked them, how did you stop drinking? How did you start drinking that coffee? And they said, oh, you want Al-Anon. So they sent me upstairs to the Al-Anon meeting. (laughs) And I went upstairs, and the people were very gracious, and they said, I said, is this Al-Anon? They said, yes. And I said, the man downstairs said, I belong up here. And they said, okay, they brought me in. And I said, "Um, I can't stay for the meeting. I just want to know how you got those people to stop drinking. (laughs) And they said, well, you have to stay for the meeting. Uh, You know, we're going to have have speakers and we have literature and all. I said, well, I'll take the literature, but I just want you to tell me how you got them to stop drinking because I I really can't stay. And uh, the girl looked at me and she said, well, are you going to work or something? I said, no, no, I have ten homeworks. And uh, she said, you're right where you belong. (laughs) And brought me in and sat me down. And the higher power had it fixed up that night that I would hear two speakers that were the same, exact same age as my brother and sister who were at home. And they were telling how they were using the program of Alateen to live with a an actively drinking mom, an active dad, and an active grandmother. And in fact, we're planning on a six-week week trip with the grandmother to California. Now, I don't know what I thought you did with alcoholics once you found out what they were, but start with flush them down the toilet. <laughs> and I never dreamed anybody would say, I'm going on a six-week trip with one after you knew that that was an alcoholic. So I had to kind of, I was very interested in what they had to say. And when there were comments after the speakers, I asked my question. Well, how, how do you make them stop drinking? And the lady said to me, you are powerless over your dad's drinking. You are powerless over that. And there's nothing that you can do about it. And you know what? I had a bittersweet feeling, a twinge of, of something different, because it would have been wonderful if I could have given it up. It would have just gotten that, that heavy thing that I felt around my neck, that burden off my neck. If I could have said, it's not my problem, it's somebody else's problem, I won't be worried, I won't be bothered. But if I didn't do it, who would? I was sure that if those people told me 
how they got those 30 people or so to stop drinking. I felt so powerful and so strong that if they told me how to do it, I would be able to bring back prohibition single-handedly. <laughs> but they didn't have the answer for me that night. They said I had to come back. And they said to get to a lot of meetings, it would help. Well, I couldn't. I had all these homeworks. And they had to be perfect. So I decided, well, this was a very interesting phenomenon, this, this alcoholism. So I decided then I would become an expert on this disease. And I found that there was a facility nearby, a mental institution, and they had a building, Building 10, that was set aside for alcoholics. And at Building 10 on Sunday, they had these workshops. And so uh, people could come and be educated about the disease and hear speakers and, and uh, get involved. And I thought, well, I'll go there and I'll learn all about alcoholism. And I did. I started um, right away the following Sunday. I drove out after church and I went right there. And after about four or five Sundays of this, I was becoming an expert. And I said to the man who ran the, the, um, the, the workshops, I said, you know, uh, I have um, some questions about this. Would it be that if a person acted thus and so and, and um, blamed you for everything that ever happened in the house, would it be that if um, you never fixed anything right, you never cooked right, you didn't cook enough, you didn't clean enough, if you were cleaning too much, you were too tired, uh, would it be if you were living with someone like that that they might have a drinking problem? And, uh, well, yes, he said it could be. And I said, well, I have a problem like that at home. It's, I, I came here for my father to find out about alcoholism and what my mother should do. But I'm getting an idea that I'm having this problem at home uh, with the, the father of my children. And uh, he said, well, do you think he'd want to talk to me? And I said, oh, sure. He would, he'd be glad to talk to you because um, he doesn't want us to have all this trouble. And he said, well, um, you tell him to call me and, and uh, come on out and we'll have a talk. And uh, I said, well, he'll probably be here tomorrow. I'll go right home and tell him and uh, give him your phone number. So uh, he said, oh, okay, Peggy. And so Peggy went home. Oh, I drove so fast, and I pulled into that driveway, and I jumped out of the car, and I ran in, and I said, come down here. Come down here. I have something to tell you. What is it? I just found out our whole problem. Oh, my goodness, I just, I know all the answers. I know what's wrong. With what? Well, with us, with the family, with the whole thing. What is it? You're an alcoholic. <laughs> Where are the car keys? You are not to go to that place again same tone we use when we say to the kids, you're grounded. So I was grounded. 
And I thought, well, I really did find out everything there was to know. And I was practically an expert. But I needed to find out what we could do about this marriage. So I signed up for a marriage course. And um, when I went to this course, it was an evening course, the couples were there, and they were all kind of trying to learn all about communication and things all together. And so every week I would holler at the man who was giving the course, and I would say, well, what's this? What are you talking about? This is a plant. What's this, part of the national conspiracy against me? You have couples here at, at this marriage course. And uh, he said, well, well that, that's what I would expect. The couples would sign up. I said, well, how about people like me, that uh, their husband doesn't speak to them, and they don't speak to their husband? And, uh, you know, isn't that what I'm supposed to do, is come here and find out about marriage? And uh, he put up with me every week with all my questions and all my rage and my anger and, uh, and hollering out at him and putting him down. And uh, I finally got the, got the message, but it took a couple of months that... Uh, in reality, I wasn't a couple anymore. I thought of myself as two people, and I probably did all the things for two people. So reality was beginning to set in. I started to go to Al-Anon meetings, and I went for a little bit, and then, then I would stop, you know, and I wouldn't go back again, and I would try another thing. The next thing I tried was a psychology course, and that was very interesting. The teacher in that course sat in the middle of a desk like a little Buddha and every week we would go in and we would sit all around him and he would perpetrate his ideas on us and it was very interesting I thought that if I would learn how people what made people tick I would find out what made people drink he never got to that part but what he did get to at the end of our course was that he offered me a job in a new business that he was starting and would I be a a um, surrogate sex partner for the people <laughs> that were signing up in his group. And I couldn't, I said I couldn't do that because I had too much ironing. <laughs> but eat your heart out, you would have loved the job. <laughs> then I joined a yoga class. I thought that maybe if I stood on my head long enough, they would all stop drinking. <laughs> that didn't work either, needless to say. And the problem was getting worse at home. I was into the place where you're damned if you do, you do and you're damned if you don't. I met um, some people. I would bump into people that I had met at Al-Anon. I'd meet them at the supermarket, and they would tell me that there was a good speaker coming, and this and that was happening. And so... For my first three years in Al-Anon, I must say I was a drop-in. I wasn't there enough to be a drop-out. And I would drop in at meetings and I would see what was going on. But as the, as the things happened at home, uh, it, it got really very, very difficult. Uh, I couldn't do anything right and I was begin beginning to become more miserable within myself and, and full of self-pity. And at the same time, I was very powerful because I, would, I was such a know-it-all that people would call and ask me problems, ask me answers and questions and things, you know, ask me for answers. And I ran a little marriage counseling course from my kitchen phone. Mm -hmm. And if people would call up and they would complain about their kids, I would say, put them in a reformatory. 
And if they called up about their husband was doing this or that, I would say call the police and get a divorce. And I had, you know, very, very good answers for things. And, um, and, and, and I was becoming more miserable. And also the disease was progressing in my family. My oldest child at this point was, was a senior in high school. And in the fall of her senior year, had to be admitted to the same mental institution that I went to to become an expert. She had to be admitted for drug and alcohol problems. And this was in 1970. And it wasn't like it is today, you know, where you go to a place that looks like a ski lodge and you drive in and the things are so beautiful and everything's rosy and the people are real nice. It wasn't like that for us. I had to take this luscious 17-year-old girl to a place where you unlocked the elevator and then you locked it again and then you clack, you're, you're, you walk down a hall to the room or to the day room and your, your, your feet were very hollow along the way and people would pop their eyes, pop their faces out of their, out of their room and say, are you my doctor? Are you my doctor? Are you my doctor? And it was just all of that, and I had to turn my back on her and leave her there. And it was the hardest day of my life. I must say it was the first hardest day of my life. And as I drove home from there, I knew that I had to get back to Al-Anon. I knew that the things that I had heard in the program and heard at meetings were the things that had given me some semblance of sanity and serenity and I knew that was where I had to go. The next morning I went to a meeting and it was a Monday morning meeting and I went into that room and the windows were open and I could see a tiny little brown bird out the window. He had just landed on a branch and the branch was just very light and it was going up and down and up and down and the bird was quivering and quivering and that's exactly the way I was I was quivering and shaking inside and I was just just reaching for something and everything that I grabbed onto was so shaky and just was up and down and nothing was strong or, or sturdy there was just nothing I hadn't seen or touched or been near anything that gave me any feeling of peace and contentment or quiet or or any kind of strength I had nothing I realized that I needed the program but I didn't realize then how much I sat in the back of the room and I just cried for the whole meeting the following Monday I went back to that meeting and I drove around for about 45 minutes because I couldn't find it. I couldn't find the place. And I realized that I couldn't remember anything that had happened from that Monday previous to that day. I didn't know why, and I didn't know what was happening to me. I'm not that kind of person. I, if I usually, if I find a place once, I can usually find it again. But I could not find this church and I knew then that I had 
that there was something really wrong with me. When I went into the meeting, I knew that I had, when I finally did find it, I knew that I had come to the end of Peggy. And I didn't know it then, but it was the beginning of God for me. I sat at the meeting and I cried again and I cried for about three months at every meeting. But I went there and I experienced the beginning of the love and the healing that I needed and the beginning of the strength that I needed. And all of those things came from other people. None of it came from me. I didn't have any. I was at the end of me. I learned that it was a simple program and that was all that I could handle. It was simple but not easy. There were things that I had to do. I had to read. I had to call people. I had to have fellowship. I could sit and read about a way of life and it was wonderful. But I needed the fellowship. If I was going to decide to let go and let God, I needed people to hold me up in that decision. Because letting go was the hardest thing for me to, to, to even think about, let alone do. I had realized then that I was just a function at home, that I wasn't really a person. I was the person who made Christmas. I was the function who made Christmas. I made lunch. I made dinner. But I was not thought of as a person. And that was a tough moment when I realized that, that I had given up my identity. I had given up what God had made as Peggy. I had given that up. I had given it over to a disease. <coughs> and I made a commitment to myself that that disease wasn't going to take over in my life any further. But it didn't happen that day. Just the commitment was made. I have a friend who's a, a surgeon and um, he's very well known and he does his work at five hospitals and he does a fabulous job at, it, at what he does. But I know that the day that he decided to put his first step in medical school, nobody let him operate on somebody. It was a process. It took a long time. It took years and years. And each year he's allowed to do a little more and a little more. And he can, but he has to study and he has to work. And that's the way it was with me. I made a decision about things, but they didn't happen right away. It took a while. I learned the program is free, but not cheap. It's a free program. All you have to do is put a buck in the basket. Most meetings around our way, we, we don't have to pay for any literature, except the hardbacks. So it was a free program. But by damn, it wasn't cheap. It cost me a lot to hang in there. I had to go out and I had to leave kids at night. Not with their father who was abusive because he was never home. But I had to leave them with each other and they were very abusive to each other and abusive to our home. And there were times when, when I came back that I found the program wasn't, wasn't free, when I had to replace windows and furniture and, and uh, sometimes take people to the hospital to have stitches repaired and things. They were a real motley crew. 
But it came to a point where I needed more depth in the program, and I decided to start to go to step meetings. And all of the changes that happened to me were fabulous as I look back on them, but they were very painful for our family. And one of the changes that I decided to make was that um, I was going to be divorced from the father of my ten children. I only knew one person in my life who was divorced, and that person had rejected me and rejected my children and uh, was the children's grandmother on the other side. So I couldn't very well call her and ask, ask her uh, about divorcing because um, she, I was divorcing from her son, and she wouldn't probably, we wouldn't have had a very jolly conversation about that. So I had to get a job and decide how I, that I would buy a divorce. And so I proceeded to do all those things. And they were very painful for me, painful for my children. And um, as I began to, to grow and proceed and process in my own growth, I began to emerge as a person. And I began to be able to make some decisions for myself. And I began to look around for a man. And I wanted somebody I could pray with and play with. And I wasn't sure that that was going to be in the cards for me. Who would want somebody with ten children? And they were all home and they were pretty much all rotten. But would you believe that I finally did meet a man. Not that I was, I was looking, as I say, but I wasn't, you know, out throwing myself around. I had my eyes open, but um, I was still doing what I was supposed to be doing. And would you believe I had a couple of kids in my Alateen group that were neighbors, and they had grown up with my kids. And uh, these, our two families had uh, taught each other whatever you teach each other in the loft of a garage. <laughs> and um, then they all wound up in Alateen together. And I was the sponsor. And I got to know and love the kids as, as one does when they, they uh, are an Alateen sponsor. And these couple of kids one night, their dad came to pick them up. And the dad was also somebody that I had that I knew from PTA, and I was involved in a project at PTA. And I said, "Would you want to help me with that? Because I, I need some help. I need some people to do some things. So, would you come to rehearsal and things on Tuesday night?" Yes, he would, but uh, he was out looking for an apartment because he was making a move. He had decided a few months before that that he was going to make a move. And I said, "That's funny. I decided a few months ago I'm going to." do some things about what's happening at my house. So as we began to have rehearsals and began to do things and uh, began to get more friendly, we began to fall in love. And it was really a marvelous experience to go from being damned if you do and damned if you don't to being loved no matter what and accepted no matter what. And so, a man came into my life and we married a few years later. 
And when we married, we combined two families. I brought ten children, and he brought four. When we married, we had five children in high school. And it was really, really a riot. We had our own zoo. (laughs) We had some painful moments. We weren't finished with the police yet. Or the emergency room. We were just beginning a lot of things. But we began, the two of us together, to go to step meetings and to, to really try to grow in our program. And somehow we made it and our marriage made it. My, one of my experiences with going to the step meetings was that um, I would get very, very um, agitated when we would talk, when we would get to the, the, the series of steps that talk about amends, you know, being willing to make amends and then make amends, da 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 da. And so those things would kind of bother me, and I wouldn't have much to say at those meetings because I would be getting real bothered about something. This ex-mother-in-law of mine had become very ill, and she was beginning the last stages of cirrhosis of the liver. And I felt that for some reason that the higher power was telling me that I should begin to try to make amends. And so I said to my group one Monday morning, okay, I'll, I'll think about this. I'll do something about it. And Mother's Day was coming up. And I sent some flowers. And that was, you know, a little tiny thing, a little tiny feeler that went out. And they were graciously received. Over the years, as I said, my children had been rejected And I, of course, had been rejected by this person. And so I wasn't sure how it was going to go over. But the children were very, very pleased that I had done this. And then they decided, okay, we'll go see Grammy. And that began for them and for all of us to have a relationship again. Not not a full-fledged, you know, come over every other day relationship, but the children began to visit. And as her disease progressed, it was my children that rallied around her and put up a schedule where they would visit around the clock and take care of her. And now she's in the hospital. I just had a call right before I came over to this room tonight that she was better today, but I saw her the other day and she was beginning to go into the coma. And uh, for some reason she snapped back a little bit and so that'll be, that's something that's down the road for us. We have a lot of things that are hard that are down the road for us. But I'm so glad that I had this program, that I would be able to make some kind of a, of a move toward making amends. I had the courage, and I had the fellowship, and I had the, 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 um, the push behind me to do it. The motivation the support. Over the years of being in the program and with the kids behaving the way they were, I got to know a lot of different people. I got to know matrons in jails. 
got to know a county judge not too far from here. I got to know a plastic surgeon in Florida because of a motorcycle accident. My daughter called one day and said, remember how pretty I was? I hadn't seen her for a long time. She said, I just woke up in the hospital room and I have my teeth. One tooth is up in the back of my nose somewhere. My face is all messed up and I have to be in touch with a plastic surgeon. Can you pay? I got to know the people that um, are involved with adoption agencies and people who run homes for unwed mothers. But I had something behind me each time I had to have an appointment with these people or a phone call. I had the strength and the courage and the serenity of the people that loved me no matter what happened to me or in my family. And they never blamed me. They never said, Peggy, you're a rotten mother. You went to too damn many meetings. They never said anything like that. They said, come out, come over for coffee. We'll go with you. She's not a bad girl. And that was comforting and healing. I began to know people in intensive care units. My 42-year-old brother died there in a coma from alcoholism, from cirrhosis. My dad died of cirrhosis. My children's two grandfathers died of alcoholism. My 23-year-old cousin died in the drunk tank in Philadelphia. My mother has 35 grandchildren. 15 of them are alcoholic. Many of my family members are in Al-Anon. Many of them are in AA. Five of my ten children are alcoholic. They all have a program. I'm happy to tell you that. When my daughter came out of the mental institution, she decided that she wasn't going to go back to school. She had six weeks to go before she would graduate from high school. But she'd made a decision that she wouldn't go back. And when she made her decision, I was away on a retreat. And I've noticed so many times through the years that when people make these decisions around me, then I'm not there. Somehow, the higher power has had me out of town, in the hospital, or somewhere else that I couldn't be involved with their decision. And that's been very helpful through the years because it helped with my guilt. I didn't have to go 12 rounds with that again because I would feel that, well, I wasn't there when it happened and God is good. And when Margie left home, I would like to tell you that she went on the road, but she really went on the street 
and it was very painful and there would be a long time when I wouldn't hear from her and as I said before when I would hear it would be something terrible like I'm in jail can you call the judge and pay and I would I would do what I could always behind her and always with her and one day a call came and um, I was sitting watching TV with the other children and it was such an unusual experience for us to be having a quiet moment that when the phone rang I said to my son well if that's for me see if I can call them back so he answered and he said mom it's Margie do you want to talk to her and I said sure I hadn't seen her for almost two years and I hadn't talked to her, talked to her, heard from her on the phone or anything for about three or four months. So I said, hi, March, how are you, hon? She said, well, I'm not as good as I'm going to be, but I'm a lot better than I used to be. And I almost dropped the phone. Over the years, there were so many times that I had gone to meetings and I would speak or share and I would say, would you please pray for my daughter? I don't know where she is. And I would say, I, I need for you to pray for all of us. Pray for me that I can stand it no matter what happens. She had chosen such a weird lifestyle. She would come home and she would be dressed in clothes that were odd and I could never figure out what she was into. I know that she lived on a boat for almost a year with all these people that she would pick up on the way. And I would wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh my God, they're drowned. Something happened. I know she's dead. And then I would pray and I would be able to get back to sleep. But I had some rough, rough nights worrying. And when this call came, and she said that I almost fainted. I said what do you mean and she said well three weeks ago God spoke to me in the middle of a drunk and I haven't had anything to drink since and I don't think I'm going to drink ever again but I know I have to do it one day at a time I said have you been to meetings she said well where I am there aren't too many meetings but I would like you to send me two books I want the AA big book and I want the Bible. And I said, well, hon, if you need those things and, and there aren't people around, um, maybe uh, there are meetings around here. There are a lot of meetings. You know, Maybe you could come home. And she said, well, would you want me? And I said, are you kidding? I want you more than anything in my life. She said, okay, well, I'll come home. I'll see if I can get the plane fare. Thank God I had gone to all those meetings because I said, okay, you see if you can get the plane fare. And I hung up. And that was almost the second hardest day of my life. But I knew, I had heard enough at open AA meetings and people sharing at Al-Anon meetings where they had sent people $200 to fly home and never saw them again. And they had paid 
paid for uh, you know things and and it didn't work out the people went drinking again and that so I hung up the phone and I went wailing and yelling all over the house my god I can't believe it my prayers are answered I can't believe it I can't believe it I went screaming and yelling all over and the kids didn't know what happened and I was rolling around on the floor and then I would get up and I'd run up the third floor and then I'd run down again and I'd run all around hollering and yelling and I finally told them what happened and then we got on the phone well for her to call us back and tell us when the flight would be was almost impossible for her to get through because I was busy calling all the people that I had told to pray for us over the ten years and the call finally came about one in the morning about when she would be at the airport and I went out to the airport that morning for her and there was a fog in Philadelphia and where she was coming in from and I walked up and down the airport and I said God I can't stand it I can't do it I can't I can't stand her I'll kill her I don't know what I'll do with her I can't handle it people say sobriety is horrible and then I walked again and I would say God I can take it give me anything just as long as she gets back here I can handle it and you know what it's a good thing they're used to nuts at the uh, Philadelphia airport <laughs> so I wasn't arrested or put away or nothing was done to me I was allowed to rant and rave and finally after five or so planes came in from her area a couple hours later finally one came in with a lot of people on it and as I said I hadn't seen her for two years so I wasn't sure what oddness I would have to look at at this point I just became willing to accept whatever and I looked at all the people as they come, came up up the steps and and I finally heard this voice that said hi mom and I turned and looked and there was my gorgeous gorgeous daughter restored to me and I realized that I hadn't heard that voice since that kid was in fifth grade that's how long this disease had been processing on her she got in the car and she was so bubbly and happy and grateful and we were thrilled we threw a big party and every year at that time we throw a big party because the kid really did come home and she's made it and she's made it big and that'll be nine years at Thanksgiving we have a lot to be thankful for at our house one of the things that I learned here that I was not ready or willing or, or almost I wasn't able to learn was compassion as I told you before I didn't know what I thought you did when you found out somebody was an alcoholic but start with flushing them down the toilet and so I had no compassion I mean really they should just all get rid of their husbands they should shoot them I don't know what they should do but not you know you should never live with one you should never have one in your house it's like a dog that won't be trained <laughs> but you know that had to change 
And I remember thinking that I would cringe when people would come to the meeting and they would say, well, my daughter is um, engaged and uh, this guy is an alcoholic. And I would say, well, tell her to get rid of him. I mean, really, there are plenty of people that don't drink out there. She doesn't have to marry an alcoholic. It'll ruin her life. And then I realized that one day I was going to the meeting saying that somebody was becoming engaged to my alcoholic son. The things changed, and I learned a, a lesson here. And I learned something about compassion. And I'm praying every day to God that I will eventually have that as a virtue. It's not easy for me. I would rather judge. I would rather be miserable. That's my more, my more spontaneous thing is to be bitchy. <laughs> takes a lot of work to get that out of the way. Today, I live with joy in my heart. And I know that there are some hard things down the road. I've found out that alcoholism is a terminal illness. I've also found out that it's fertilizer. It's helped me grow. It stinks, but it helps me grow. <laughs> and my toughest part is for me to grow and to let go. That's my toughest thing. Being the oldest of the big family and then proceeding to have a big family, I would rather be able to tell the kids what to do and to tell them how to live their lives. I'm so good at it. And I read a lot of good things. Ladies' Home Journal, Women's Day, all those things that tell you how to live and how to, how to behave and how to keep your house all polished up and all of that. And I, I'm just dying to pass on all that information. But I know from you guys that I better keep it cool, keep quiet about it. And I don't want to be a function anymore. I want to be a person. I want to become real. I had so many answers for questions before that weren't, weren't a real person. But it's hard now to start to feel things because I cry and I get sad. And I, and I get mad. And I don't want to do things. And I have to fight. And I'm enjoying my, my service time in Al-Anon. It was true what, this, what my sponsor told me, that I would learn and I would get a lot of insight. And I would change my perspective if I did try service. And I'm finding that it is. A change, another change, and another another way. It's taking my focus off the things at home, and I appreciate that. And I'm I'm thankful for the trust that my group and and others have given me. The trust that they have in me. Nobody would have trusted me before because I was mean and I wasn't nice about things. And I wasn't sensible. So I'm grateful today for your committee trusting me too to come and share with you. And I would like to say that I will thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Thank you.